Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In May 1922, 24-year-old Molly Maja slowly limped into her dentist's waiting room. Today, Molly was supposed to have another tooth extracted. The procedure had sadly become a routine for the young woman. Since developing her first toothache six months before, Molly's mouth had been falling apart. Dr. Kneef, her dentist, had pulled so many teeth she hardly had any left. Their empty sockets had become oozing, pus-filled ulcers. The smell was unlike anything else Dr. Kneef had experienced. That day, as usual, Dr. Kneef welcomed Molly into the operating room and invited her to sit. She managed to prop herself up onto the chair and lay back, despite the pain in her hips and feet. Her severe arthritis was trivial compared to the agony in her gums and mouth. That day, Molly's jaw hurt worse than ever. The doctor nodded at her complaints, hoping to somehow lessen her suffering. He cautiously reached into her mouth, moving extra gently to avoid causing any unnecessary pain. As the well-meaning dentist lightly touched the girl's jaw, it snapped. The bone was as fragile as tissue paper. Days later, Dr. Kneef removed Molly's entire jaw by simply lifting it out of her mouth. Molly was deteriorating at an astonishing rate, and if Dr. Kneef didn't figure out what was happening soon, she wouldn't survive much longer. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on a group of young women known as the Radium Girls. Their tragic, avoidable deaths baffled physicians for years. This week, we'll examine how they fell prey to a mysterious condition that caused joint pain and toothaches, and then wore away their jaws from the inside. Next week, they'll struggle to prove the cause of their disease in court, defying the best medical knowledge at the time. After the armistice ended the First World War, America was ready to have fun again. New music, new fashions, and new attitudes prevailed in the United States. So, when a glow-in-the-dark wonder drug called radium burst onto the scene, it was sensationalized as a cure for cancer and a modern marvel. Radium has always existed naturally on Earth. 
but it took the genius of physicists Marie and Pierre Curie to extract it from uranium in 1898. Soon the element was sold over-the-counter in medications like radithor, also known as radium water. After that, it made its way into makeup, exercise equipment, and even chicken feed. Allegedly, farmers hoped it would make chickens lay fully incubated eggs. Besides its healing properties, radium was also known for its glow, often going by the nickname liquid sunshine. By the 1920s, it was used in luminous paints. For the first time in history, everything from wristwatches to scientific instruments could be used in complete darkness, and products flew off the shelves. Now, these were the days before mass automation in the United States. If you wanted to, say, produce thousands of luminescent dials per day, you had to hire thousands of workers to manufacture them by hand. One of these workers was Amelia Molly Maja. Shortly after she started working in the factory, she began to suffer from regular toothaches. The pain spread through her body and to her hips and knees. For lack of a better diagnosis, Dr. Kniev theorized that she had syphilis. The early symptoms of syphilis are usually mild and difficult to notice. Firm sores appear where the infection entered the body, usually somewhere on the genitals. Within a few weeks, rashes develop on the hands and feet. Both the sore and the rashes are painless. During this stage, the patient may also experience common flu symptoms like fever, swollen lymph nodes, and muscle aches. If left untreated, syphilis will eventually affect the patient's nervous system, causing chronic headaches, paralysis, and even dementia. At this later stage, syphilis can fatally infect the patient's organs, shutting them down. Molly's doctors believed that late-stage syphilis had infected her jawbone. Although it's uncommon, the disease has been known to target the bones. But Molly had never experienced rashes or mental deterioration during her sickness. She remained fully aware even as her body turned against itself. The incompatible symptoms, coupled with the strong taboo of sexually transmitted infections, drove Molly to seek a second opinion. Then a third. She never treated her alleged syphilis or received a more accurate diagnosis. After months of suffering, 24-year-old Molly Maja passed away on September 12, 1922. Much to the confusion of her family, her death certificate listed syphilis as her cause of death. The responsible young woman they knew seemed unlikely to catch such a scandalous disease. But rather than probe into the shameful diagnosis, they chose to let the matter rest. Two days after Molly's funeral in New Jersey, an ad appeared in a small-town newspaper more than 800 miles away. A new factory was coming to the tight-knit community of Ottawa, Illinois, and with it, hundreds of jobs. The advertisement promised a clean and healthful working environment. A new company called Radium Dial wanted young women skilled in fine brushwork to apply small dots of radium paint to watch hands and faces. It isn't hard to see why the job was so appealing. The Victorian building, a former high school, was beautiful. The pay was good. And then there was the glamour and mystery of working with radium. 
1922, the element was still one of the rarest and most valuable substances on Earth. Young women all over town were drawn to its allure like moths to a flame. Although the ad specified that they didn't want employees under the age of 18, many girls as young as 15 were soon hired. Superintendent Lottie Murray trained Radium Dial's first group of employees in the basics of dial painting. Lottie made it clear that it was fine to have a little fun on the job as long as the work got done. If the girls had any hesitations about working with radium, fellow instructor Mercy Reed set the record straight. After walking them through the process of creating the glow-in-the-dark paint, she scooped up a spatula full and ate it. That settled, the girls began their work mixing the paint, which they called names like Luna and Marvelite. Its active ingredient, radium, constantly produces an electric current as it decays. This discharge is called radiation. When the radiation is strong enough to visibly electrify the air around it, it produces light. Several companies, including Radium Dial, applied this radium-based glow-in-the-dark paint to military timepieces and airplane instruments. They also caught the attention of luxury watch brands. In order for the small numbers and symbols to show up in the dark, the paint had to be applied with extreme precision. Lottie and the other instructors taught the girls to place their camel hair paintbrushes between their lips. When they drew it back out, the brush's tip would be shaped to a razor's edge. This practice was called lip pointing. On average, a dial painter would place their brush between their lips 1 to 14 times per day and produce 250 to 300 glowing dials. Radium Dial's practice of lip pointing was inspired by another dial painting company called the United States Radium Corporation, which had operated out of Orange, New Jersey since 1917. That was where Molly Maja had worked before her untimely death. Molly's co-workers missed her laughter, but they tried to keep their spirits up. They had no way of knowing how much she'd suffered since she left her job before her symptoms became severe. They continued to playfully paint their faces, nails, and even teeth on a regular basis. When a dial painter named Irene Rudolph began to experience a pain in her mouth, she never realized that her symptoms matched Molly's. Life had been uniquely hard on Irene. Orphaned at an early age, she lived with her aunt, uncle, and cousin. When she fell ill, her medical bills drained her adoptive family's coffers. To make matters worse, she was laid off soon after the factory had to pay a settlement to its neighbors, who complained about the fumes discoloring their laundry. Irene had saved some money, but she quickly spent it all on her frequent dentist appointments. Doctors Walter Barry and James Davidson hadn't communicated with Dr. Kneef and therefore had no clue that Molly Magia had suffered the exact same aches, pains, and infections that now plagued Irene. Instead, Dr. Davidson thought that Irene had fossy jaw, a condition caused by working with phosphorus. In the mid-1800s, 
workers at a matchstick factory in Europe had developed ulcers and pain in the jawbone. Physicians had deduced that the phosphorus used in matchstick heads was the culprit. As the workers had breathed in toxic vapors, phosphorus had entered their bloodstreams and quickly poisoned their teeth and jaws. Their jawbones experienced necrosis, which literally means that the bones died, taking on a brownish-black coloration. Infection then spread throughout the mouth, resulting in the characteristic ulcers. According to a case description from that outbreak, the symptoms of Fossey jaw eerily matched Irene's, including a chain of ulcerated openings from which there was a profuse discharge and through any of which a probe could reach dead bone. After Dr. Davidson's diagnosis, a group of chemists examined U.S. Radium Corporation's paint formula to see if Irene had ingested a lethal amount of phosphorus. During this investigation, which took place around New Year's Day 1923, the company's vice president, Harold Veit, falsely claimed that the practice of lip pointing had been formally warned against. But he didn't have to be concerned. There was no phosphorus in the paint. U.S. radium was in the clear. Irene's physicians were at a loss to explain her failing health. All they could do was stand by as she deteriorated. She became a pale imitation of her former self. Her jawbone became fully necrotic, and ulcers sprouted from her mouth to her throat. Finally, on July 15, 1923, she passed away. She was only 21 years old. Irene's story was very similar to Molly's. They'd worked at the same factory and suffered through the same unusual and gruesome death. But Irene differed from Molly in one way. She had an ally. Irene lived with her cousin, Catherine Schaub, who was also a dial painter at U.S. Radium. Catherine Schaub had lived and worked alongside Irene for years, accompanying her to gruesome dentist appointments and watching her fade away every day. Meanwhile, she still worked at the Dial Painting Factory, where she eventually heard rumors about Molly's identical symptoms. As she mourned her cousin and pondered Molly's ailment, Catherine Schaub continued to paint tiny white dots onto small dials. Day in and day out, she dipped her brush in the paint, then onto the dial, then in her mouth, over and over again, hundreds of times. And then one day, Catherine Schaub's tooth began to ache. Coming up, this mysterious sickness claims more victims, and an unthinkable pattern emerges. Now, back to the story. In the early 1920s, dial painters Molly Maggia and Irene Rudolph succumbed to a peculiar and undiagnosable disease of the jaw. One by one, their teeth had died, only to be replaced by oozing ulcers. Their jawbones died as well, and in 1923, they both tragically passed away. As one of U.S. Radium's earliest employees, Molly's death was whispered about on the factory floor. Irene, on the other hand, lived with a fellow dial painter named Catherine Schaub, who saw her decline firsthand. Then, Catherine Schaub began to feel symptoms of her own. 
As she got sick, Catherine Schaub also heard the gossip about another co-worker's death. Helen Quinlan had passed away just over a month before Irene. Her doctors diagnosed her with Vincent's angina. An angina is a broad category of diseases marked by sharp, often suffocating pangs. It can be caused by plaque in the veins and various types of infection. The most common form of angina is angina pectoris, which triggers chest pains. When angina primarily affects the mouth and throat, it's called Vincent's angina, after its discoverer, Jean-Henri Vincent, and is also referred to as trench mouth. It earned this nickname during World War I, when many soldiers lived in squalid conditions and had no access to dental care. A type of acute tonsillitis, it typically becomes fatal when tissue in the throat becomes so infected that it dislodges completely and blocks the windpipe. The patient effectively chokes on their own flesh. Usually, Vincent's angina is caused by a specific genus of bacteria, but Helen's doctors bafflingly diagnosed her with fossy jaw as a comorbidity with her Vincent's angina. Phosphorus poisoning can harm the immune system, opening the door for opportunistic bacterial and viral infections like Vincent's angina. But there was no phosphorus at the factory. It was still possible that Helen had Vincent's angina, but it was caused by something other than phosphorus exposure. Irene had also been nonsensically diagnosed with phosphorus poisoning. Molly's official cause of death was syphilis, a flawed diagnosis that couldn't address the complete death of her jawbone. Even if no one else could see it, the pattern was clear to Catherine Schaub. Something was going on at U.S. Radium. She filed a report with the Department of Health the day after her cousin's funeral. Even though she couldn't pinpoint exactly what might be causing the sickness, she made sure to mention the practice of lip pointing. In response, the Department of Health placed a quick call to the factory. U.S. Radium Vice President Harold Veit denied any wrongdoing, and the matter was settled. Just like that. But Catherine Schaub wasn't satisfied with the half-hearted investigation. She knew what had happened to Irene, Molly, and Helen. Faced with a painful decline and inevitable death, she started asking tough questions. Catherine Schaub heard more horror stories as 1923 reached its end. A co-worker passed away after being diagnosed with pneumonia and gangrene. Another girl developed a limp. One more went to her dentist after work on Christmas Eve, and she never came back to the factory. Around this time, the dial painters were instructed to stop putting brushes between their lips. The official explanation was that their saliva could harm the adhesive in the paint. Catherine Schaub figured this was a bold-faced lie. Someone at the company knew something the dial painters didn't. Still, many of the girls were happy to no longer taste the gritty paint hundreds of times a day. Even though Catherine Schaub wasn't lip-pointing anymore, her symptoms got worse. She sought treatment from the same dentist as her cousin Irene, Dr. Walter Barry. Dr. Barry had long suspected that Irene's occupation may have contributed to her sickness. But once Fossey Jaw had been ruled out, 
he hadn't been able to determine the culprit. When Catherine Schaub showed up at his office, he had a second shot at making the diagnosis. Around this time, two sisters, Josephine and Genevieve Smith, also went to see Dr. Barry for their jaw pain. He encouraged the sisters, along with Catherine Schaub and fellow dial painter Marguerite Carlo, to sit down together. Dr. Barry and the girls shared everything they knew and guessed at potential causes. They didn't come to any conclusions during their meeting, but it accomplished something important. It established a vital communication network amongst dial painters who were beginning to fear for their lives. In lieu of a firmer diagnosis, Dr. Barry promised not to remove any more of their teeth. It did more harm than good. The bloody sockets where teeth had been always became infected. Dr. Barry also strongly encouraged the girls to quit their jobs at the factory and to pass along his recommendation to their co-workers, a big ask for an enlightened generation of working women. Many continued to work despite the danger and more young women got sick. Hazel Vincent, a dial painter outside of Dr. Barry's circle, sought treatment for her jaw pain in New York City. She became the first U.S. radium employee to receive an X-ray, a poorly understood new technology that hadn't quite caught on yet in the medical community. The scan revealed that Hazel suffered from more than just necrosis. Her jawbone was dotted with minuscule holes. Her dentist, the famed oral surgeon Dr. Theodore Blum, said it was moth-eaten. In a flash, the condition was finally named. Hazel was suffering from osteomyelitis of the mandible, or an infection of the jawbone. Osteomyelitis literally translates to bone infection and often leads to necrosis or bone death. The condition is most commonly found in vertebrae or longer bones found in the thigh or upper arm. Osteomyelitis of the jaw, however, had been uncommon since the end of the fossy jaw epidemic nearly 50 years earlier. The rarity of the infection compelled Dr. Blum to deliver a speech about the condition to the American Society of Oral Surgeons and Exodontists on September 6, 1923. In his speech, Dr. Blum charted the progress of Hazel's mysterious condition. The infection began in her gums, causing inflammation, toothache, and a fever. Over time, the gums and other mouth tissues continued to swell, and according to the report, Hazel experienced immobility of the tongue. By this point, the condition looked like a particularly severe case of gingivitis, mild gum irritation that stems from poor dental hygiene. Typically, a dentist faced with these symptoms would recommend the infected tooth be pulled, and nearly every time, they'd be right, and the problem would go away. But Hazel's infection originated in the jawbone, not the teeth. So the tooth extractions failed to get to the root of the problem, and Hazel's infection eventually spread to her lymph nodes. She hadn't progressed past this point yet, but her outlook was dire. Dr. Blum strongly recommended against pulling teeth, as the gaping hole would instantly become infected by the necrotic jawbone. He then ran through the possible causes of jawbone infection. He addressed Fossey jaw, noting that Hazel's case was different from those in the past. 
she hadn't been exposed to phosphorus. The transcription of his speech ends with a small but vital footnote. He related the story of a patient who suffered from all the symptoms of fossy jaw, but didn't work with phosphorus. The footnote reads, During the fall of 1923, there came under my observation a case of osteomyelitis of the mandible and maxilla, somewhat similar to phosphorus necrosis, which, however, was caused by some radioactive substance used in the manufacture of luminous dials for watches. The condition has been termed radium jaw. The term radium jaw had first been coined to describe cancer patients who develop toothaches, joint pains, and frequent oral bacteria infections. Nobody was sure how radium jaw was caused, but it always appeared after the patient underwent radiation therapy. The idea that radium could be used as a cure for cancer was based on its ability to kill cancer cells. But it killed healthy cells as well, just not as quickly. Today, oncologists are careful to limit a patient's exposure to radiation as the treatment can be incredibly damaging. But at the time, scientists didn't fully understand the harm that could come from prolonged radium exposure. Dr. Blum was the first to notice that Hazel's symptoms matched those of some cancer patients. And he recognized the one factor that they all had in common, exposure to radium. Although he didn't say exactly why, Dr. Blum believed that radium caused Hazel's osteomyelitis and all the awful things that followed. It's unknown whether Dr. Blum read his footnote out loud to his contemporaries, nor do we know how his crowd might have reacted. But the small footnote finally pointed the finger at America's favorite element. Most of the world saw radium as a miracle cure. It killed cancer cells. It had been added to water and makeup as an anti-aging element. Corporations sold radium heating pads that allegedly treated rheumatism. Doctors even prescribed it for impotence. It was unthinkable that radiation might actually be bad for people, especially because U.S. radium's executives were about to do everything in their power to dispute Dr. Blum's findings, even if that meant their cover-up would kill more employees. Coming up, the dial painters receive some much-needed answers from an unexpected source. Now back to the story. In early 1924, the writing was on the wall for U.S. Radium's dial painters. For years, their co-workers had died of painful jaw infections that spread to their joints. U.S. Radium argued that the condition was syphilis or some unrelated infection, until Dr. Theodore Blum identified the ailment as radium jaw. Girls left the factory in droves per the advice of their physicians. One day, victim Hazel Vincent's mother, Grace, hand-delivered a letter to her daughter's former workplace. The family wanted compensation for Hazel's failing health. The Vincents were probably just seeking help with hospital fees. Still, the United States Radium Corporation entered crisis mode, desperate to avoid an expensive court case. Then-President of the United States Radium Corporation, Arthur Roeder, 
invited Harvard professor Dr. Cecil Drinker to investigate his factory. Presumably, he genuinely didn't think there was anything wrong, and he hoped an independent investigation would exonerate him. Dr. Cecil Drinker enlisted his wife, Dr. Catherine Drinker, and his colleague, Dr. Castle, to assist him. A visit was set for April. In the months leading up to the official inspection, U.S. Radium's vice president, Harold Veit, felt compelled to do something about employee morale. With dial painters resigning in fear, the company's bottom line was at risk. A small internal investigation was conducted and identified a few more girls with tooth infections. But of course, the corporation found itself innocent of any wrongdoing. But some people weren't buying the company line. Rhoda recommended that Veidt have a sit-down with Dr. Barry, who'd recommended that the girls quit their jobs. Roder thought that Dr. Barry was overly cautious and that once Veidt met him, his fears would be assuaged. In Roder's words, Dr. Barry had jumped at conclusions, apparently without thought or knowledge. This meeting went poorly, to say the least. Dr. Barry was joined by his colleague, Dr. Davidson. They'd been side by side with these girls, helplessly watching them die in agony. Vite wasn't prepared for their anger. The furious dentist told Vite to shutter the factory at once to prevent any more senseless deaths. Vite claimed that he wanted to help the girls, but he couldn't take the recommendation. Closing down the plant was unimaginable. It just couldn't be done. Instead, U.S. Radium continued to operate as if nothing was wrong. On April 15th, the day before the drinker's scheduled inspection, 20-year-old Jane Stocker, known affectionately as Jenny, passed away from osteomyelitis. But this time, her knee had been infected, not her jaw. This made it easy for executives like Roder and Vite to dismiss the case. But factory workers like Marguerite Carlo, Catherine Schaub, and Josephine and Genevieve Smith knew that Jenny still fit the pattern. The other victims had also experienced stiffness or pain in their legs or hips. But no matter how much they argued their case, their employers didn't listen. The girls needed an impartial third party to confirm what they already knew. At long last, Dr. Cecil Drinker, Dr. Catherine Drinker, and their Harvard colleague, Dr. William Castle, visited U.S. Radium on April 16, 1924. The second they walked through the door, they saw how dangerous the factory was. It was covered in a thick layer of glowing dust, particles dancing in the air. There was no safety equipment for the dial painters, who inhaled radium with every breath. The situation already looked dire, and then they met Marguerite Carlo. Marguerite hadn't worked at the factory for about four months, since Christmas Eve 1923 when she saw her dentist about jaw pain. No one knows for sure why U.S. Radium invited her back four months later to attend the drinker's investigation. The only plausible explanation is that the company's higher-ups were completely ignorant of her condition. By April 1924, Marguerite was a gaunt and pale young woman whose mouth was full of leaking ulcers. 
Her wounds were poorly disguised by the bandage she wore on her thin face. What's more, Marguerite's sister, Sarah Carlo Myfair, still worked as a dial painter. Sarah's health was also deteriorating. She needed a cane to walk. At the sight of the sisters, Dr. Catherine Drinker informed Dr. Roeder that further study was necessary. The president could have denied Dr. Drinker's request, but doing so on the factory floor would only have proved that he had something to hide. U.S. Radium had no choice but to welcome the scientists back when they returned in May, and that time they came prepared. Company Vice President Veit tagged along with the three doctors as they interviewed U.S. Radium's chief chemist, who casually disregarded his own hand lesions. They proceeded to examine 22 U.S. Radium workers, about half of whom were dial painters. The girls reported to the women's restroom, where doctors searched their teeth and necks for painful spots or swollen lymph nodes. Then, Dr. Catherine Drinker gave them a closer examination. Having a female physician on hand was instrumental in gaining the dial painter's trust. If Catherine Drinker hadn't been a part of this investigation, the scientists may never have convinced the girls to disrobe, and they wouldn't have made a truly shocking discovery when they flipped off the light. The dial painter's bodies bathed the restroom in a pale green glow. The young women's necks, chests, inner thighs, and even faces were luminous. In the beginning, the girls had felt like artists working with futuristic materials. The paint was a huge perk of the job. They'd slather it on their skin for dances and dates. But as time wore on, they'd realized that the paint didn't always wash off. The marks had become grave symbols of their fates. The drinkers and Castle finished their examination, then collected blood samples for further testing. When Veit received the results of the blood tests, he was immensely relieved. No traces of phosphorus were found. The company immediately released their own spin on the information. The girls couldn't possibly have Fosse jaw, so the sickness was probably just some viral infection spreading throughout New Jersey. Dial painting had nothing to do with it. But U.S. Radium deliberately withheld information. By focusing on the phosphorus results, they sidestepped any other possible cause of the illness. They didn't even address the theory that radium could make their workers sick. To make sure nobody else dug into the girls' radium poisoning, the company threatened the scientists with a lawsuit should the full report ever see the light of day. Outraged, the drinkers resolved to investigate the condition further until they got to the bottom of the matter. Along with Dr. Castle, Cecil and Catherine Drinker tracked down several New Jersey dentists and physicians, including Dr. Kneef, who treated Molly Maggia just three years earlier. They identified eight patients who were still alive and suffering. And then the researchers learned more about how the girls had been exposed to radium. They estimated that dial painters had ingested 100 milligrams of paint equivalent to the weight of a honeybee, every day while lip pointing. But even after lip pointing was discontinued, radium lingered in their bodies. Trace amounts of radiation were measured in the breath of one woman who hadn't worked at the plant for years. 
most importantly, the drinkers and Dr. Castle finally concretely linked necrosis of the jaw and Vincent's angina to radium poisoning. The truth, it seemed, had won out. Their full-length report was published and quickly got the attention of the New Jersey Department of Labor. The study was life-changing for the dial painters. For years, their employers had gaslit them, claiming radium was safe and even healthy. Now, the women's doubts and suspicions were finally confirmed in black and white. But victories can be hollow when a powerful company's profit margins are on the line. The girls continued getting sick, and U.S. Radium denied the drinkers' results. They refused to accept any culpability or help their dying employees with their medical bills. So, on February 5, 1925, Marguerite Carlo filed a lawsuit against U.S. Radium. By then, Marguerite was dying. She'd exhausted her finances, her spirit, and her physical strength in a battle against her own body, one where the outcome was inevitable. Still, she found the strength to stand up for herself, for her co-workers, and for objective truth. Marguerite's bravery inspired Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Edna Hussman, and two of Molly Maggia's sisters, Quinta McDonald and Albina Larice, to join the case against U.S. Radium. This group of young women, whom the press dubbed the Radium Girls, would take the world by storm. They knew their lives were forfeit. They were fighting for the future and for their fellow employees in other factories, like those in Ottawa. There, workers still used lip pointing. The bosses must have heard the chatter from the East Coast, but they'd kept the information to themselves. Their employees had no reason to believe their magical glow-in-the-dark paint could harm them. They needed an open line of communication to learn about radium's dangers and to prevent more pointless deaths. Which meant the radium girls had their work cut out for them. They'd fight the corporations in the courtroom and in the press. Most skeptical Americans saw radium as a healthy cancer cure. Now, the sick and dying girls had to prove it was deadly. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with more of the story of the Radium Girls. We'll detail their legal case and each woman's failing health as they try to prove radium caused their condition. For more information on the Radium Girls, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. 
This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Eric Stankey, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.